We're going to read the Bible now. Uh, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, uh, open them up, uh, but we'll also have the words on the screen. Let's read. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind that even pagans do not tolerate. The man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Wow, that got serious quickly, didn't it? Welcome back to 1 Corinthians and then BAM! Expel the guy from church. Did you even realize that the Bible talks about throwing people out of church? But it does. Three times in this passage, Paul tells the Corinthians to throw a particular guy out of that church. So verse two, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Down in verse five, hand this man over to Satan. And then down in verse 13, expel the wicked person from among you. Did you even realize the Bible says this sort of stuff? In a million years, could you ever dream that this might happen to you? Well, in the 23 years or so that I've been the senior pastor of our church, I can think of a handful of times that we have actually had to do this. We have had to say to someone, you must not come to our church. And 1 Corinthians chapter 5 has been the passage that shaped our thinking and our actions. Today's a really serious bit of the Bible, isn't it? And it shows us just how serious belonging to a church can be. So what on earth has been going on at Corinth that was so bad? Well, have a look in verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that not even the pagans tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So there it is. A man in the Corinthian church was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, it's probably his stepmother, not his actual mother. And we don't know whether she was still married to his father or divorced or widowed. But either way, Paul says, even the pagans won't do that. And that's saying something in Corinth. And the reason is 
this dishonors the man's father. The Old Testament actually talks about this sin a few times, and in each place it says that it brings dishonor on the father. So Leviticus 18 verse 8, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife, that would dishonor your father. To have sex with your father's wife, whether, she, whether he's dead or alive, dishonors your father. It shames him. So in, in 2 Samuel 16, Absalom sleeps with King David's concubines in front of the entire city in order to shame and offend his father, King David. There's something terribly, terribly wrong with a son sleeping with his father's wife. Even the pagans recoil from it. And that's what's happening in this Corinthian church. But to make matters worse, the Corinthians are actually proud of this guy. So look in verse 1 again. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. In fact, in verse 6, they're boasting about it. They're thrilled about this relationship. Christians are celebrating something here that even the whole world says is wrong. And at first you might think, well, surely this would never actually happen, right? I mean, surely Christians could never be proud of something that even non-Christians are ashamed of doing. I don't believe it. I remember the story of an Anglican bishop here in Australia who was a highly respected leader And then it was discovered that 20 years before, he'd slept with a woman that he had been counselling for her abuse as a child. He took advantage of an incredibly vulnerable person under his care. And then he kept the matter secret for 20 years and rose through the ranks of the Anglican Church until he reached the second highest position in the Australian Anglican Church. And then it all became public. And he admitted it. And he resigned. But the people of his church would hear none of his resignation. They saw the whole thing in a romantic light. They said it was consensual. They said they'd been in love. And so they refused to accept his resignation. And he stayed as a bishop. They were proud to have him as their bishop, they said. You see, what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians isn't so strange. The sad thing is, Christians betray their moral code all the time. So what's Paul going to do about this? What's Paul going to do about this sin? Well, look, in in verses 2 to 5, he gives them a series of commands that we're going to look at soon. But before we do, I want us to look at Paul's reasoning first. Because in verses 6 to 8, Paul teaches the Corinthians how to think about church and he teaches them how to think about sin. And he starts in verse 6 with a Jewish metaphor. So have a look in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? You know, Friday was a, a revolutionary day for me. I did something that I don't think I've ever done in my entire life. I cracked open a cookbook. I don't think I've never ever knowingly opened a cookbook to use it. See, I figure cookbooks are for wimps. When I cook, I like to fly by the seat of my pants. I like to experiment and so spaghetti with custard. Who knows? Never know. It could be great. Someone's got to be first. But on Friday, I had a look at the Common Sense Cookbook, which told me that when you make bread, 
you use this enormous amount of flour and then only the tiniest amount of yeast. And just that tiny weeny little amount of yeast is actually going to affect that whole big amount of flour so that the whole, the whole lump of dough will then become yeasty. And Paul says that process, that's what's going to happen to you. This one man's sin is actually going to infect your entire church. The sin that begins with him is going to become an epidemic in your whole church. A little yeast will work through the whole batch of dough and pretty soon you will all be sinning just like he is. Basically what Paul's saying is this man's life is going to normalize and legitimize sin. Which of course shows us, doesn't it? When people talk about their behavior and they say, well, look, what I do in private is my own business. It's not. It never is. Because church is a family. Church is relationships. And so our life, good and bad, always affects the people around us. We teach people every day by our actions. A little yeast always works through the whole batch of dough. And that's what will happen to the Corinthians. In no time at all, sexual immorality will spread through the entire church. And yet, you know, Paul's warning actually goes a little bit, a little bit deeper than that. Because the idea of yeast brings up one of the big events of the Old Testament, the, the Passover. We read about it a little bit earlier. The Passover was when God rescued Israel from Egypt and, and took them off to the Promised Land. And after nine plagues that God sent on the Egyptians, God said he was going to send a tenth and final plague. And this plague was going to kill all of the firstborn in Egypt. But before God sent that plague, God institutes two festivals for Israel to separate them out from the Egyptians. The Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so if you've got a Bible open, just come back to Exodus chapter 12 and you'll see it there. In verse 3, God says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Now skip down to verse 6. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. They to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And that same night, they're to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. And then when God passed through, when God's angel of death passed through Egypt, this blood on the doorpost meant that none of the children of Israel would die. They had been separated out from the Egyptians by this blood of this Passover lamb that was spread on their doorposts. And they weren't just to celebrate this meal once. No, this was a lasting ordinance for generations to come. They were to remember this separation of the Passover every year. But they were also to do a second feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because from that 14th day, when they killed the Passover lamb, until the 21st day, a week later, Israel was to get rid of all the yeast from their houses. So look in verse 18. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone 
with a foreigner or native born who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. You see, for a week after that Passover meal, Israel would have separate themselves entirely from yeast. And so they would hunt through their house and they'd find all the yeast and they'd get rid of it. And they still do the same kind of thing now. And again, the point was to show how separate Israel was from Egypt and the other nations. Just like the flour was separate from the yeast, so was Israel separate from Egypt and the other nations. They'd been separated by the blood of the lamb. And this yeast was kind of a visual illustration of that. And they celebrated this every year. In fact, the Jews still do. Every year, the Jews hold this giant seven-day-long party to celebrate the fact that they are God's separate, holy people. And Paul says to the Corinthians, this is exactly what happened to you. You have become God's separate people. Because come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and look in verse 7. He says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, Christians have become God's separate people. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And he's been sacrificed and his blood marks us out and we're headed towards the promised land of heaven. And what that means is Christians are separate. We are different, separated out from the rest of the world and we're separated out from our old lives and our old sins. We are gods now. And this is something that Christians really have to realize. We are not like the rest of the world. I mean, sure, we're like the world in some ways. We got jobs like everyone else. We like the same music and the same sport as everyone else. And we love the beach and we've all got families. But in one key way, Christians are totally separate. We are God's people now. We belong to him now. We've been separated out by the blood of the lamb and as God's people We have to be different to the rest of the world. That's why down in verse 11, Paul says, none of this teaching actually applies to people who aren't Christian. So look down in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slander, slander or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. See, Paul says, I'm not talking about the people of the world, about people who aren't Christians. But if someone claims to be a Christian, that's a different matter because now they're claiming to be one of God's separate people. We are God's separate people now. We've been saved by the Passover lamb. And in fact, this means our entire lives are meant to be a celebration of being different, 
Our whole lives are a feast of unleavened bread. Remember how Israel had to get rid of the yeast for seven days? Well, look down in verse 8. Paul says, Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, our whole lives now are meant to be like that feast. But we don't get rid of little grains of fungus. No, we get rid of sin. We get rid of malice and wickedness. We get rid of sexual immorality and greed. And we don't just do it for one week of the year. No, this is our whole lives now. If you're a Christian, you have been saved by Jesus. His blood has brought your forgiveness and you have been saved to be different. Different to the world. Different to your past. So embrace that difference. This is actually the biggest thing to take from this passage. I mean, yeah, sure. Paul tells the Corinthian church to expel this man from their church. But by far the most important thing about 1 Corinthians 5 is that we are meant to be God's separate people. In fact, wouldn't the best thing to take away from this passage be that we don't commit the sins in the first place? That we'd be passionate about being different. If you're a Christian, you're separate from the rest of the world. You're God's now. Sin is not your way. And so we're not like the world that takes pride in sin. No, we grieve over our sin. That's what Paul says in verse 2, isn't it? A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? Sin for Christians is actually something to grieve over. Not to boast about, because sin makes us just like the rest of the world. Sin makes a mockery of Jesus separating blood. So yeah, sometimes I find myself in conversations with Christians about our past lives. And one person will kind of mention, you know, that before they became a Christian, they lived a pretty wild life. And, you know, they might hint, drop hints about some of the stuff they did, maybe drugs or sex. And then someone else in the conversation will drop the hint that they've got a pretty checkered past too. And... And, you know, sometimes there is almost a sense of pride about our past lives. I haven't always been this sheltered, naive Christian. And look, don't get me wrong. There is actually something really healthy about admitting our past mistakes and sins. Because it reminds Christians that we're saved people, not good people. I did some terrible things before I became a Christian and after. I hurt a lot of people and I dishonored Jesus and Jesus has saved me because he is loving, not because I'm lovable. It's good to admit that. But never with pride. I should never be proud of those things. No, I should mourn them. And yet so often... I look at the sins that I used to commit in the past and they're kind of like old friends. I miss them. I'm not repulsed by them. I'm not grieved over them. Sometimes I wish that I could do them again. Friends, this must not be. Christ's blood has separated us out from the world and from our past lives. I want to mourn the fact that I used to be part of the world. I want to mourn and grieve over the fact that I did those things because they dishonoured my Lord. 
and they did me no good at all. When was the last time that you really examined your life and allowed the seriousness of your sin to strike you? When was the last time you grieved over your sin? When was the last time you looked back at your past life and felt heartsick before God? Ask God to soften your heart. Ask God to soften your conscience to his word so that you hate your sins, so that you weep over them and cry over them and wail over them and mourn over them and despise them and kill them. Because if you never grieve and mourn over your sins, you will stop asking forgiveness for them. Sin will become a nothing to you and you'll stop asking for God's forgiveness and you'll maybe even stop repenting. Let's mourn over sin. But not just mourn. Let's celebrate that we get to be different. See, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was a celebration. It was a celebration that Israel got to be different. Let's be the kind of church that celebrates the fact that we get to be different. We get to be like our God. See, it's so easy to slip in to thinking that obeying God is actually a miserable life. It's all sacrifice and misery. And what I really wish I could do is be like everyone else. No. Let's be the kind of church that really revels in and celebrates obedience. When we see people being generous, let's celebrate it. Tell them how encouraged you are by it. When you see people being faithful in their marriage or being patient with their kids or being pray or praying or being steadfast, Let's celebrate those things in each other. Say to them, I was so encouraged to see you do that. Keep on going. Wouldn't that be a great church to belong to? Where we just cheer each other on every time we see ourselves being different to the world. Where we make godliness a festival. You see, this passage isn't so much about chucking a sinner out of church. It's about being the kind of church that loves to be different. Jesus, different people. Let's be that church. And yet there is no avoiding it, is there? Paul does say to remove this man from their church. So let's dig into it. The first thing that Paul tells them to do about this man and his sin is to gather. So look in verse 3. Paul says, For my part... Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. And so when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the last day. So the first thing Paul tells them to do is they need to gather. Because when you think about it, there's something incredibly powerful about gathering to show that we all belong to something, isn't there? Uh, my family's having a little family reunion in a couple of weeks' time. You know, just the cousins, just my particular generation. And it's funny, you know, I love those guys. I grew up with them. But most of the time, I actually forget that we're even family because we're all spread out. 
We're all spread out between Sydney and Newcastle and Wollongong and Canberra, and we just don't see each other day to day. But then when we get together, I remember how much I really love them. And whenever someone's not there, it kind of hurts, you know, because the gathering is important. The gathering says we're all part of something together. And so imagine if our whole church gets together in one place, all of us in Jesus' name, all of us showing that we've been separated out from the world by Jesus' blood. Imagine we're all together. And then as a group, we say to one person, not you. Not you. You cannot gather with us. It's an incredibly powerful message, isn't it? It's so powerful it almost feels cruel. But we're going to see in a minute that it's not about cruelty. It's about unity and separation. Christians gather because Jesus has separated us from the rest of the world and he's joined us to each other. See there in verse 4, we assemble in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We assemble because everyone here has been separated from the world by the blood of the Lamb and we all have the same spirit, so much so that even though Paul wasn't there physically, he could say to the Corinthians, I am there with you in verse 4. He was there with them because he's got Jesus' spirit too. See, that's actually what Sunday church is. It's expressing our unity as a group of people in Jesus' name, with Jesus' spirit, separated out from the world by Jesus' blood. That's why if you're hesitating to come back to church, come back to church. It's not that going to church makes you a Christian, but it's a celebration of the fact that you have been separated from the world and you are part of this group of people. Come back to church. And when these people were gathered like this, they were to cast this man out from among them. Which is a massive thing, isn't it? Really, what they were saying to that man is, you are not a Christian. Your life is telling us, Jesus is not your king. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You're not one of Jesus' people. So you can't gather with Jesus' people. I think that's what Paul means in verse 5 when he says to hand this man over to Satan. He's not saying to hand him into Jesus' clutches or anything like that. He's already in Satan's clutches. He's already in Satan's clutches. He's saying, cast this man out to Satan's realm, the realm of the world. Put him out of God's people. Verse 2, put out of your fellowship, out of your sharing, the man who's been doing this. Verse 5, hand him over to Satan. Verse 13, expel the wicked man from among you. And look, it just sounds so brutal, doesn't it? It sounds so incredibly painful. And I'll be honest with you, the handful of times that we have had to do this have been some of the hardest moments of my life. There's been sadness, there's been weeping, there's been broken relationships. Often the person has just headed off to another church, which has meant that I've had to then call that church the pastor and let them know the person who is coming along. There is nothing romantic about this. It's awful, awful, awful. And so what's the point of it? 
What is it trying to achieve? Well, the first thing that it achieves is to protect God's people, isn't it? So in verse 6, Paul says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. When people openly disobey Jesus in church, it does affect everyone else. We're talking about culture here. Once drunkenness gets hold in a church's culture or sexual immorality or greed or gossip or bitterness, once those things become established in church and tolerated in church, even if they're not openly separated, uh, celebrated, even if they're never openly talked about, once we know that they're accepted, once this is the open secret, everyone in church gets affected by it. And even if it's not the same sin, what we're saying is that sin itself doesn't actually matter. But sin does matter. It matters enough for Jesus to shed his blood for it. And so that's the first motive here. It's actually to love Jesus' church. But you know, the second motive is also to love the person. Which sounds incredible, doesn't it? I mean, if anything seems unloving and harsh, it's this. But the goal is actually to love the person. It's to help this person to turn back to God. Because look what Paul says in verse 5. He says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul's aim is actually that this man will be saved on the last day. See, this isn't about punishment. Jesus has already taken our punishment. This is actually about showing the person how serious sin is. The aim is that as they are separated from God's people, they'll see that sin is a serious thing, that Jesus, their Passover lamb, has been sacrificed and they are to live a separate life. They cannot keep living the way the world does. Our aim is actually that they will repent, that they'll turn back and be saved. And look, it's actually possible that that's what happened in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, so this is the the second letter, he says, If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, and not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Now look, we can't be certain that Paul's talking about exactly the same man there. I mean, after all, this is Corinth, crazy things were happening. But it seems likely to me that it is the same man. And Paul says, now the time has come, after you've expelled him, the time has come to forgive him and comfort him. He's experienced the sorrow of being cast out of church. He's turned back to Jesus, so welcome him back in. You see, repentance is the big goal here. And in fact, Christians repenting of their sin, it's a big goal. It's a big deal in the rest of the New Testament. So in Matthew, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. 
You see, it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? The hope is that we would never have to remove someone from church. The hope is that when we, would, when we discover sin, we talk about it, we pray together, we turn back to God. It's only when the person refuses to repent, refuses to turn back and live as one of God's people. Then that's when we have to do this incredibly traumatic thing. In fact, Matthew's really helpful to us in another way because it shows a real concern for justice. We're not just talking about rumors here. We don't just talk, we don't just deal with hearsay. No, we actually need to check it out. We need to have the evidence of two or three people. And in Corinth, everyone knew what this man was doing. I mean, they were celebrating it for crying out loud. Evidence wasn't the issue in Corinth. Repentance was. And if someone repents, we need never remove them. Titus 3 says something similar. And Paul says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. You see, we warn the divisive person in the hope that they'll repent. Because repentance is something that every Christian does. Repentance is this beautiful thing where I say, I'm not doing this anymore. I wish I hadn't done it in the first place. I'm turning back to God. And that, what this does, it helps us to see, we're not just looking for a particular kind of sin, are we? It's not like some sins are just so bad that we can't tolerate it. We're going to chuck you out of church, but other sins aren't actually very serious. Now, any unrepentant sin is dangerous, isn't it? Even being divisive in Titus is dangerous. In fact, down in verse 11, Paul says, being greedy, being a slanderer, being an idolater, ripping people off. Any part of my life where I refuse to obey Jesus as my Lord, that's a serious issue, isn't it? Because it stops being about that particular sin and it starts being about how I treat Jesus. And how I treat Jesus is the most important thing in the universe. If you call yourself a Christian, if you are sinning unrepentantly, if you are just living whatever way you choose, not submitting to Jesus, not obeying Jesus, that is, you've just given in to sin, please repent. Please come back under the Lordship of Jesus for your sake and the church's sake. Turn back to God. Don't put yourself and the church through the horror of telling you to depart until you do repent. Because it is a horror. And yet sometimes it simply has to be done. Can you see why we want to be the kind of church that really helps each other to keep living for Jesus, to keep repenting, that's why growth groups are so important. We need to be in each other's lives and we need to keep helping each other to live for Jesus. We need to take that risk that asks each other how our marriage is going. How are we going with drinking? How are you going with greed? And we need to be in each other's lives and we need to speak into each other's lives. And if someone does this to you, if someone comes to you and asks you about an area of your life, don't be offended. Don't get all childish and defensive. Don't get aggressive and insulted. Even if they muck it up, of course they're going to muck it up. They're terrified. They're terrified of losing your friendship 
and they're terrified of what the conflict is going to begin, uh, going to involve, and so of course they're going to muck it up. But that they're approaching you is an act of tremendous love. And so feel their love and not just the sting of your pride. Let's be the kind of church that never has to do 1 Corinthians 5. You know, I think this is, this is an incredibly confronting passage. As I've said, we've only ever had to ask a handful of people over the years not to come until they repent. And each time it's been painful, it's been traumatic, and I've been tempted to really hate 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But actually, you know, I love this passage. I love it. I love it because it shows us just exactly what it means to be a Christian. We are the people who've been saved by the blood of the Passover lamb. We are God's different people. And that's huge. And this passage shows us what a massive thing it is to join a church. You're not just sitting here on a Sunday. No, you are part of God's family. You are part of God's people. And we don't just do the let's be nice to each other thing. No, we do real life together. We help each other to follow Jesus together and we care enough to challenge each other and we care enough to protect the church from sin. This is where life gets real. And so I thank God for 1 Corinthians 5. Let's do that. Let's thank God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these confronting words. We thank you that we can learn from the tragic mistakes and sins that occurred in Corinth. We thank you that we are the people who have been separated out by the blood of the Passover lamb. We thank you that we now get to live the feast of unleavened bread, not removing fungus from our lives, but removing sin. We get to be different. And we thank you that rather than being a trudge and a drudge, this is a festival. And we pray that as a church, we would love being obedient. We would celebrate obedience. And Father, we pray that you would continue to give us hearts that repent. May we never have to remove people from church until they repent. We pray that it would be part of our normal daily Christian life, that we continue to turn our backs on sin. And we pray that we would help each other to do it. We pray that we would love each other enough to take those risks and that we would love the church enough when the time comes to protect the church. Please give us courage to do what is right when it needs to be done. Please give us a passion for your holiness and our difference to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.